I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloff. And this is your 200th episode of The Magnificast. Listen, it's been 200 episodes. I'm not going to buy a soundboard now. Uh, no one can make me. I'm just going to do the noise with my mouth. That's the best. That's how real podcasters do it. People who have 200 episodes of a podcast, that's how they do it. That's right. They learn the fully. They do it themselves. Uh, some things don't change. That doesn't change. The uh, semi trucks going by my apartment every episode doesn't change. Um, but some things do change. Uh, the world changes as this podcast goes on, and we're just trying to respond to it. And here we are, 200 episodes later, and we decided that why don't we go back to the heart of worship, the heart of this podcast, and talk about what it's really all about, which is the working class. Uh, it's been a, a hot topic on the internet lately, <laughs> for some reason. Um, who's in it? Who's out of it? Whatever. We have talked about it on this podcast before, but on this, our 200th special anniversary episode, uh, we're just going to go back into the, the basics and get down to business and talk about why Christians should care about the working class. That's right. In the last few years, uh, socialist politics have made a big comeback in North America. <laughs> the, the DSA has 85,000 members, Twitter tells me, and isn't that great? <laughs> and there's a bunch of elected officials who also believe in socialism now. And that's a cool thing. Man, what a neat a neat time to be alive except for that terrible pandemic and uh looming fascism <laughs> um but the uh i mean the exact character of what the emerging socialist politics mean or like what they look like is still be determined by the folks that are you know behind them and motivating them but uh if nothing else there is a resurgence of uh socialism in mainstream politics and more people really want to know about like class and how to define it and uh, what the working class is so in this episode we're going to do that we're going to talk about who belongs to which class and uh and then what that means for uh political analysis and also like i think it's a really important thing to talk about because christians progressive christians particularly uh, but conservative christians too they're all we're all bad at it we're all bad at talking about <laughs> class christians so pay attention to this one i guess yeah, right i mean right. christians have this o overarching tendency to want to uh kind of paint the picture of a, a harmonious world where uh where our unity in Christ outweighs the uh, the differences in our um, our economic classes, but that's um, a pretty big fantasy. So, anyways, um, <laughs> we're going to talk about class as it relates to uh, Christianity as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, we've said on this podcast before too that one of the primary oppositions or contradictions that Christians and especially the United States have noted in the last uh, couple of decades is between Christians and the state. Right? Christians have developed a whole 
um, particular kind of suspicion toward the state, state progressive ones, that is. Um, and that's fine. But as we're always saying, class is really the opposition that, for whatever reason, Christians have a difficult time understanding. And I think that, Matt, you're right to characterize it in this sort of frame of harmony. Everybody wants to get along. And because I'm a Catholic, I always uh, think of the famous papal encyclical Rerum Novarum uh, as the kind of perfect crystallization of exactly that in kind of the negative sense. So Rerum Novarum is maybe a good place to start, and I'll read a, a passage on it that gives us uh, an idea of how I think Christianity has a difficult time wrapping our, our heads around that primary contradiction. Um, that'll give us something to bounce off of for the rest of the episode. So if you don't know what it is, Rerum Novarum is a, an encyclical that came out in 1891. It's kind of noted as like the birth of Catholic social teaching from the magisterium. Um, it had some good things to say, and it had, if you're a Marxist, some kind of deficient things to say. And of course, Catholic teaching has developed quite a lot since Rerum Novarum, uh, but it's a sort of foundational document. Um, the document is basically the Pope's take on... Uh, on working people and the state of labor and capital in the 19th century. So it's kind of the Catholic competitor to Marxism and other forms of socialism. Uh, and here's what Rerum Novarum says. The great mistake made in regard to the matter now under consideration is to take up with the notion that class is naturally hostile to class and that the wealthy and the working men are intended by nature to live in mutual conflict. So irrational and so false is this view that the direct contrary is the truth, just as the symmetry of the human frame is the result of the suitable arrangement of the different parts of the body, so in a state is it ordained by nature that these two classes should dwell in harmony and agreement so as to maintain the balance of the body politic. Each needs the other. Capital cannot do without labor, nor labor without capital. Mutual agreement results in the beauty of good order, while perpetual conflict necessarily produces confusion and savage barbarity. Now, in preventing such strife as this and in uprooting it, the efficacy of Christian institutions is marvelous and manifold. First of all, there's no intermediary more powerful than religion in drawing the rich and the working class together by reminding each of its duties to the other and especially of the obligations of justice. So that's what the Pope thinks about class conflict. Um, that <laughs> It isn't good. It's not real. And in fact, Christianity is the very thing that reminds you that it's not real. Uh, if there was ever a kind of um, uh, positive explanation of the opium of the masses in a certain sense, it would be this. Uh, the Pope taking that directly on board, right? That religion's role is actually to basically placate or try to uh, draw together rather than pull apart uh, the proletariat and the, uh, the capitalist class. Um, lots of wild things to say about Rerum Novarum, but it's that fundamental vision of class harmony that uh, we have to sort of uh, think through. It has a hold on us as Christian people. Right. I think it's, I mean, okay, so Rerum Novarum, that's, for, that's just for the Catholics, you might be thinking. I'm a Protestant, so this doesn't apply to me, is also <laughs> what you're saying. Imaginary Protestant I've made up right now. <laughs> it does, though, because people in Protestantism say this kind of thing all the time, um, especially if they're like, uh, well, especially if they're bourgeois, you know, <laughs> especially if someone goes to your church and they own the Wendy's down the street. They're going <laughs> to say this kind of thing all the time that, uh, you know, they're a Christian business owner. They treat all of their employees like a good Christian person should, which uh, who knows what that means um, in their mind. But whatever. Um, and, you know, they'll say something like, well, Christians should all have more in common with one another than, um, you know, regardless of their class. Christians should, you know, they have the they have 
Jesus kind of in the middle of everything. So that's the thing that unites us. But like, it really doesn't because at the end of the day, um, Protestant Christian business owner who owns the Wendy's, he's still going to exploit his workers and there's nothing they can do about it. Right. He's not going to suddenly um, be very cool to them and give them, you know, paid time off and sick leave and uh, everything else just because uh, they're all Christians. It's just not how it works out. So I think to imagine that um, to imagine that there's no such thing as class because you are all united in Christ is a really (laughs) bad idea. It's not true. I think it's very clear that it's not true if you've ever been on the uh, not business owning side of that relationship. (laughs) It's just it's just a load of hooey is what I'm here to say. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think what's so wild about even Rerum Novarum and some Protestant ways of thinking, too, is even beyond saying there's no such thing as class, many people will say, well, there is such a thing as class, um, but it's it's okay. Like one class isn't better than the other in a metaphysical sense. You know, we all mm. belong to Jesus. And just because you're a janitor or whatever doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian, right? You hear kind of middle class or rich Christian saying this kind of thing all the time to make themselves feel better about how nice they are to people with jobs that they wouldn't want to have or something like that. Um but I think what's really wild is in saying that classes do exist, like Rayburn Navarum explicitly says, right, that labor and capital need each other. Uh, that is always identified as a fundamentally non-antagonistic relationship, that mm. these are the kinds of things where some people are in this class, some people are in that class. And just like any other relationship in the world, you just have to find a way to get along and shake hands. Um, mm-hmm. That's what Christianity does is sort of papers over material differences, you know, not all Christianity, just the, <laughs> the, the bourgeois forms or the kinds that are uh, friendly toward bourgeois Christianity. Um, so I think, uh, you know, one premise of this podcast is as Christians on the left ourselves, we're trying to think through, well, okay, there are these powerful ideological blocks, I think, to, to really getting a hold on what's happening materially in capital in the relation of capitalism. And for us, Marxism is one tool that we can use to understand that uh, with apologies to Rerum Novarum, in fact, the working class and uh, the uh, the capitalist class are fundamentally antagonistic. But exactly how that is or how it works uh, takes a lot of work to figure out. Um, and it's important to sort of do that work. So let's do a little bit of that in this uh, episode. Before we go that far, I have a wild story to tell <laughs> about class that didn't occur to me until right now. And I've just decided that everyone needs to hear it on this podcast. <laughs> okay, so th- this is this is a way, uh, Rerum Novarum, like we mentioned a, a minute ago, right? That's sort of a, a Catholic document, but a lot of the sentiment does apply to, I think, all of Christianity. But here's how um, here's how a, a Protestant church that I went to one time has worked this situation out. So um, if you've ever been to an evangelical church, maybe you've witnessed this very same thing. And if you have, please get in our mentions. Please tell us about it because it's the most embarrassing thing I can imagine. <laughs> so I went to my parents' church on Christmas Eve for Christmas Eve service. And um, everyone there dressed dressed pretty nicely. I mean, it's like it's an evangelical church. And it's like, uh, I mean, I don't know what the, the demographics are of the church, but like, you know, it's kind of it's kind of a nice a nice middle class kind of place, I think is, is probably a good way to describe it. Anyways, uh, during this during the sermon, there was just like this um, this break where the pastor all of a sudden just said, hey, I have to make an announcement. This is so important. We ordered pizza and um, the pizza delivery guy is here right now. And while he's here, we're going to take a big offering for this pizza boy who has to come out here on New Year's Eve uh, or on Christmas Eve. 
and uh, deliver us our pizza. And everyone felt extremely good about this. I think everyone around me, <laughs> even my parents, were like all really excited about giving money to this like this dude who has to <laughs> deliver pizza on Christmas Eve. And I think <laughs> this is the this is the idea of class harmony that a lot of Christians have in mind. Like, um, you know, like they all recognize that this person who is working on Christmas Eve probably makes very little money. You know, they probably make. Um, you know, less than $10 an hour uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they're all going to do and how they're all going to like lift this person up is give them a very big giant tip on Christmas. And I think that's, mm -hmm. I mean, like, first of all, it's great. Give, give them a million dollars. Pizza delivery people, they deserve a lot. Um, but at the same time, this is like, I think a really good example exemplification of the way that Christians think about the relationship between classes that like, you know, there are these two different classes. Someone has to be in the lower class for sure, right? Somebody has to be your pizza delivery guy and mm -hmm. they have to not make very much money. And the only way we can like sort of show, show our appreciation is uh, giving charitably to them in this like extremely over the top and uh, very embarrassing scenario. Uh, so all I'm here to say is that <laughs> evangelicals are extremely, extremely weird and bad about this, that, you know, there isn't there, the, the idea that there's like unity in Christ and not in class um, is a very silly thing. This kind of exemplifies how how that works out, right? That they're still willing to be these like middle class consumers, and just like you know, the way that they show any type of connection is just monetarily um, and not solidarity. It's a it's a completely different sort of relationship altogether. Yeah, man, I think that is a really good example, though, right? Uh, Christians want to feel that they can sort of solve the class contradiction or the problems in it by doing something like charity or kind of recognizing the labor of people as being, um, you know, maybe not not morally insignificant, but still it's kind of economically natural that the pizza person doesn't get that much money or something. Um, and I think that uh, what's weird is, you know, we have this sort of idea about class that it's a basically neutral category. Um, it's tied to, let's say, your your income most of the time or your your kind of position in society. But basically, uh, if you're if you're a good Christian, you don't look down on people who make less money than you. That's like as far as you could get. Um, but in Marxism, I think we get kind of a more sophisticated analysis that suggests that class is really about relationships to production, which sounds like a really complicated thing. And it kind of is. But in the simplest terms, you could say that for Marx in a capitalist society, the bourgeois class or the capitalist class, same thing. They own the means of production, the way that people make profits and get money going in the world. And they get to decide what to do with all the profits that get made in that process. Uh, the proletariat or the working class on the other side, they sell their labor to the capitalist uh, and they generate the profit. So in, in the pizza analogy, I guess, if we had to do it, it would be the, the owner of the pizza hut, they're the, the capitalist, the bourgeois person who gets to uh, decide what to do with all the money made at that pizza hut by all those pizzas every day. Uh, the pizza delivery person, the pizza worker, uh, they don't get to decide what happens with the money that they get made, and they just get a little bit back from the capitalist at the end. They get a little bit of that distribution back, but they have no say in how much they get back or under what conditions or whatever. Um, so there's this kind of fundamental power imbalance and fundamental antagonism. Does that seem simple enough? Should we add anything to that, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it actually is, I mean, more complicated than that for sure. Um, yeah. But I think that's a pretty good place to start, right? Class is all about your relationship to production, more so than about like how much money you have or something. Though that does like factor into it, right? For sure, for <laughs> but, sure. Uh, but that that's like the primary, uh, I think, demarcation of class. Um, yeah, I mean, we could say a lot more complicated things about it, and maybe we will in a little bit. But let's let's talk about Angles. How about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Angles mm -hmm. is a good person to go to. Uh, when it comes to class. Um, so, yeah, in The Principles of Communism, Engels writes this. 
The proletariat is the class in society which lives entirely from the sale of its labor and does not draw profit from any kind of capital, whose weal and woe, whose life and death, whose sole existence depends on the demand of labor, hence on the changing state of business, on the vagaries of unbridled competition. The proletariat or the class of proletarians is, in a word, the working class of the 19th century. And I think this still works, I think, for the most part, about the the working class of the 21st century, too. I mean, it's uh, it's it's uh, this is why this is why it's the immortal science, because it's always right. It's not. But um, <laughs> I think it, I think it still sticks. I think there's a, still a lot of truth to this, though, um, that, that uh, the working class are the people who, yeah, they they have to work for everything. That's what their whole life depends on is the uh, the sale of their labor. Yeah, that's right. And this is the thing that um, Christians have kind of a harder time understanding. What's weird is even in something like Rerum Novarum, you, you get this admission on the Pope's part that that is basically how he understands the proletariat as well. Uh, people who subsist by selling their labor to a capitalist. But for someone like the Pope at that time, um, it is not a fundamental problem or a fundamental imbalance. It's this kind of imagined voluntary exchange. Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, to to the credit of Rerum Novarum, it does have a lot to say about just wages and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's not like it's totally uncritical, but the class relationship itself is basically fine for Rerum Novarum. Whereas for someone like Engels and for Marx, uh, the fact that the proletariat has to, uh, they live entirely off of whether or not they can find somebody to buy their labor, uh, that creates a pretty dangerous situation for the proletariat that is not the same as the situation that someone with a lot of capital would have. And that's the thing that Christians, I think, have a hard time understanding because we're so obsessed with uh, love and, you know, harmony and kind of not thinking about those fundamental conflicts. Yeah, it also comes down to the ways that uh, you know, neoliberal ideology has really dug its claws into Christian ways of thinking, right? It's not just mm-hmm. that, you know, of course, we want to think about the harmony between classes and, and so on. But it's also like, uh, there's also a lot of ideology bound up in it about, uh, like, well, well, they're in this sort of situation, because they've made decisions to get themselves in this sort of situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're selling their labor uh, to to Pizza Hut or whatever for seven fifty an hour or whatever. <laughs> Uh, because like they just aren't smart enough to go find a different job or they don't have the the right they you know they made the wrong choices they dropped out of high school they didn't go to college whatever you know the list goes on and on and on so it's really their own fault right so mm-hmm. i think that uh i mean I, I think that that neoliberal that expression of neoliberal ideology is not like explicitly christian but i think that um it's invaded a lot of the ways that christians think of them uh, of of working people um you, you know that's the individualization of um of responsibility to only the person who is, you know, at the, at the sort of lowest level of power in the, in the, in like the class situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Or it's also uh, at its most optimistic, there's a kind of story about class mobility, right? That if people work hard enough, uh, even though you're a pizza delivery person today, one day, you know, you'll own that pizza hut or you'll, uh, you'll whatever pay off your your college tuition and that will sort of propel you upwards um Mm -hmm. and christianity has really bought into that right that if you have these these values of good work and you work hard you will move ahead um of course that we tell that story all the time but there's a lot of data to say that is basically not how anything works at all almost ever totally it's a complete myth i mean even even if you don't want to believe in in marxism or whatever right even if you're going to just if you want to just be a liberal and you want to reject a lot of the stuff about class and how this all works even like perfectly liberal econ- economists like know this um mm-hmm. 
the economic policy, the economic policy Institute, uh, they have a whole study done about upward mobility and listen, it's grim. Chances are you'll probably die making around the same amount of money as your parents did. Like or less people in don't our case. Ascend. Yeah, well, that's really true considering debt. Um, but <laughs> you definitely don't ascend the the um, the class ladder very easily. You know, we and there's all kinds of like uh, stupid like ideologies about this and like that we that we express through stories of people who like who win the lottery or, you know, who mm-hmm. pull themselves up by their bootstraps or whatever. You know, we all know a guy who knows a guy that, uh, you know, came from nothing, but then opened up his own business. And now he, you know, uh, owns every <laughs> every uh, Hooters this side of the Mississippi or whatever. And <laughs> that's all bullshit, though. That's like, you know, not real. Uh, and there's economic data to show you that. So uh, it's it's just uh we, we trick ourselves into believing that we can become rich through hard work. And the truth is uh, you cannot, and no one wants you to. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that also is a good reason for trying to think through class in more complicated ways, because if you're a Christian, let's say who cares about social justice, um, you know, no matter what you want to think about how the world works, you should want to understand how it works on its own terms, right? So that you can really try to achieve justice. And I think Christians who do really care about justice don't want to hide behind uh, platitudes or kind of theological um, hopes that things could be nicer. You know, if the world worked in such a way that, like, (laughs) everything was capitalist, but, like, the bosses were extremely nice to their workers and their workers were very nice to the bosses and everybody kind of went home feeling like they got their fair share, um, that's, like, the world that Ray Ronovarum is is pitching. Uh, The Marxist interpretation of the world is that even if that were the case, there would still be a fundamental exploitation, a fundamental Mm -hmm. injustice happening, right, where... The worker is still on the precarious end of that relationship, and they could never be made equal. And I think that is why we really need to sort of take seriously these more sophisticated class analyses, just to be true to the fact that, you know, there's a reason that class mobility is a myth, and it's not just because people aren't nice to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's because people aren't nice to each other, and people (laughs) don't want other people to succeed because it means that they might not. Right. Well, just like you said, Dean, there are uh, there's a compelling reason to think about classes more, uh, uh, you know, more uh, dynamic than even what we've laid out so far. Um, I think it definitely helps us understand the the situation that we find ourselves in right now. And, uh, you know, you can't really understand uh, the United States and the political economy that uh, that we've got going on here without sort of deeper understanding of class. So uh, there's a lot of ways to do that for sure. And a lot of people have written about class. Um, One really easy and accessible article that I um, have read and I like is by a guy called Michael Zweig. Uh, It's an article called Six Points on Class. And it was published in Monthly Review um, kind of a while ago now. It's uh, a bit dated, but still pretty good. So uh, Zweig, uh, he goes on to say uh, that class is about the relationship to production, but it's also about a little bit more than that, too. So he says this. Class must be understood in terms of power rather than income, wealth, or lifestyle, although these do vary by class. Using power as the starting point allows us to see as a dynamic relationship rather than a static set of characteristics. Investigating class as a question of power also makes it possible to find the organic links among class, race, and gender. So there's even more going on than just who owns the means of production, right? It's uh, it's about how much power you have sort of socially because of your class. It's, it's just like... Um, you know, it's a uh, this type of analysis helps us see that it's not it's not just that like uh, well the guy that owns the Wendy's or whatever, <laughs> you know that's that's us that's small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, right? The it's petite bourgeois, it's a, a small business owner, 
And there's a certain amount of uh, power that uh, the small business owner has over their workers, for sure, right? But the small business mm -hmm. owner is is part of the capitalist class, yes, but uh, is not like the uh, the most powerful member of the capitalist class. You know, the the guy, the CEO of Wendy's or something is the, is part of maybe the the more powerful um, end of the capitalist class. You know, the person who has accrued more power and more wealth through the consolidation of that, uh, you know, and accumulation of capital. Uh, but but it's not all equal, right? So you could be um, you could be the owner of Wendy's and that uh, and, and exploit your workers for sure. But it doesn't mean that you're like the uh, the top dog, as it were, of mm -hmm. the capitalist class. There's a a whole bunch of layers of power that we can also sort through in each one of these classes. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I want to complicate that a little bit, but I want to before we do that <laughs> figure out what it opens up. Um, thinking about class in terms of power is helpful, too, because, uh, you know, we often focus on the relationship between capitalists and workers or proletarians, because that's the sort of fundamental contradiction for Marxists and, and for others, too. Uh, but there's lots of other classes running around in society as well that have different relationships to power under capitalism. Right. So uh, here's a, a great peek behind the scenes of the Magnificast uh, in the middle of this podcast. Um, Matt and I had to pause because my landlord came in because the heater is broken in my apartment and has been for the last week in the middle of November. And uh, so we've been trying to get this landlord to come fix it. And he did come. And I tried to explain to him I'm in the middle of doing something. Uh, but he was like, I can't come back later today. So I have to come in now. And I was like, well, you can come see that our heater is broken, but you can't fix it right now because I got to do this thing. Right. And uh, it's this kind of bizarre, subtle negotiation of different power relations. Right. Like at the end of the day, I'm a tenant, so I don't actually have a lot of say over what happens in here. I have some, but not that much. And also, if I want my heater fixed, I basically just have to let my landlord do whatever he wants because I like don't want to have a bad relationship with him as far as I can avoid it. Right. Uh, so landlords also are a class that have a different kind of relationship to power in capitalism. Um, on the opposite end, there are other classes like Marx and Engels talk about the lumpen proletariat, which are uh, people who are sort of like working in the you could call it like the shadow economy or the the under uh, underclass in capitalism. So um, usually Marxists point to sex workers or uh, drug dealers or people who, um, for whatever reason, just don't have access to employment in um, typical workplace settings. Uh, whether that's because they're criminalized or not. Um, anyway, all that to say, it's a class that is even further away from power than the proletariat, right, uh, mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. So uh, the power analysis is helpful because you can kind of get your finger on, you know, okay, there's the proletariat and the capitalist. That's a big thing. But there's lots of other classes that all have different relationships to power as well. Yeah, maybe on that point, too, I can say this. Uh, Zweig, he makes a distinction between the capitalist class and the ruling class. He's, he sees those as two different things. And I don't know how I feel about that um, right now. I, I read about it, and I'm thinking <laughs> about it still. But uh, it's really interesting, I think, to demarcate those two. And uh, it, here, I'll read this a little bit from uh, his essay just to, just to contextualize that distinction, and maybe we can talk about it and see if we disagree. I don't know. He says that the ruling class is considerably smaller than the full capitalist class and includes non-capitalists as well. If we think of the ruling class as those who give strategic direction to the country as a whole, extending beyond their own business institution, 
We can identify those corporate directors who sit on the on multiple boards, thus having an opportunity to coordinate capitalist activity across enterprises and add them to the political elites of the three branches of national government. So he he sees there's even like a higher echelon of power than the capitalist class, the people who direct the capitalist class. And I don't know. To me, that just seems like those are also capitalists. But he he, he seems like the uh, that's important to distinguish those. Um, and uh, I don't know, Dean. What do you think? Is that <laughs> is this is this the immoral science or is this not? I can't tell. <laughs> I think not exactly. Although it's uh, it, it, there's an important point to be made in it, but I would just sort of uh, make it differently, maybe, which is to say, um, you know, in a capitalist economy, the ruling class serves the interest of capital of the process yeah. of generating capital. Um, but so it's it's interesting though because like they they serve the process of capital but not necessarily set like capitalists like the yeah. overarching idea of like uh of accumulation and right. uh, exploitation of labor and export the um expropriation of uh resources but not necessarily single people which i think is an interesting thing yeah well that's what i mean like so if we if we try to see classes as related to the process of um capital in capitalism then a capitalist is a capitalist because they they do specific things in the economy, right? They own the means of production. They generate, well, they <laughs> they siphon off the surplus that's made by their workers, and then they distribute it in particular ways. Um, those capitalists, specifically in that point, at that in that relationship to production, may or may not be in government or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And people in government, you know, may or may not also be capitalists in in that strict sense right they may or may not actually own capital that they move around to try to build more i mean oftentimes they are right <laughs> but there's nothing <laughs> necessary that has to make that true um and i think it's true also i mean marx talks about this in a few places that the interests between like there's a national interest and a capitalist interest that may or may not always converge or coincide right, right. they have to negotiate those interests but um in a system of global capitalism it is in the nation's interest to uh try to have a competitive advantage and therefore make peace with capital rather than uh, give in to the demands of the working class. So mm -hmm. in that sense, like the ruling class isn't necessarily always made up of capitalists in relation to the process of production, but they are always related to the uh, in capitalism. They're always related to defending the ability and expanding the ability to accumulate more and more capital. Right. Well, and then to even complicate that more, right? Like in uh, in a lot of like Maoist theory, um, there's a real particular way of talking about this, right? There's the national bourgeoisie and the international. And mm -hmm. uh, in, in Maoism, the idea of uh, revolution means that uh, you might have to take the side of the national bourgeoisie before you can force the international uh, bourgeoisie out. And uh, I mean, it's complicated. I guess all of this to say, like <laughs> investing in these analyses of class is really important because you get to some, uh, I think, pretty helpful descriptions of the world that can lead you to different types of action that you might not have taken otherwise. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, right? We're kind of like already we're getting bogged down in the minutia of certain categories. But I think it's important <laughs> to to get bogged down in them because it actually allows you to try to clarify where real um points of pressure exist and mm -hmm. it's only by identifying those points of pressure that you could pressurize them right <laughs> like um if you adopt the rebrum novarum strategy or the other kind of christian reconciliation strategies between classes you're never going to be able to understand how to act in the interest of people who are more who are worse off because you won't understand why they're worse off right um so it's complicated because the way that people are disenfranchised or their lives are made precarious is complicated but 
not for that reason, something that we should shy away from or back off of. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good uh, a good point, right? Uh, j- just like always, uh, the class analysis can make you a better Christian if you let it. Right. Uh, well, speaking of that, okay, so I said I wanted to complicate the rooting class in terms of power, um, and I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the, the advantage of seeing class as a matter of power is that it helps us sidestep seeing class as a matter of income. You know, this is kind of the Marxist complaint about something like the Occupy Wall Street movement, right, where it's the the 1% versus the 99%. It's like, yeah, that's true. Um, that That's a big division in society, but uh, power is a, a much more subtle and complicated thing to sort out, right? So it has that advantage. But um, Marxism tries to do something, I think, a little bit even more complicated than that, which is to put uh, the power analysis together with a relationship to, like we've been saying, the process of production. Um, One person who is kind of controversial in Marxism, but I think does have some interesting and important things to say is a guy named Richard Wolff. He's a U.S. Marxist economist. Um, Some things he says I don't like, but he's good about this. So I'll say I'll praise him for that and explain it. Um, So he ties Marx's concept of the working class to the production and distribution of surplus. Um, surplus is like kind of just a fancy word for saying profit. It's, it's not exactly profit, but just for the sake of this conversation, let's say that it is. Um, the idea is that, uh, you, um, all the people who work generate, you know, the opportunity for profit, right? More and more money and where you relate to the process of that generation of money is how you end up in the working class. Uh, So that means you might also want to differentiate between something like productive or unproductive labor, for example. So let's just take the example of like being in a factory. In a factory, if you work on the line, uh, you would be producing a a commodity like a a shoe or something uh, in a shoe factory. And in that same factory, a janitor would also be working, right? A custodian would be working and they would be making the conditions for that production production. good or clean or, you know, amenable to making shoes. Uh, In that kind of process, the line workers who are making shoes would be productive workers, but the custodians would be what Marx calls unproductive workers. And both of those people are necessary for capitalism, right? You can't really make shoes in a dirty factory. So it's very important. It's not to say that custodians are not important or something, but their relationship to that process of production is different. the the sort of the line workers would be producing the surplus in that factory by making shoes that can be sold to generate a bunch of money for the guy who owns Nike or something like that. And they get a little bit of that profit back from the guy who owns Nike, right? They get to decide how many wages, how much in wages they want to pay. The custodians don't actually have a productive relationship to making those shoes. So they only live off the distribution of that profit, again, from the big Nike guy on the top. So there's this weird division of labor that happens within the capitalist process for people who are workers. Um, But at the very top, it's the capitalist who kind of gets to decide where all the money gets put into all those different points of production. Again, that's like overcomplicating, it might seem, but it's a big deal if you want to try to understand how classes show up in a society. Uh, And especially if you want to understand, you know, why, why do some people make money in this way and not in that other way? And I think by trying to understand class in relation to production, we could talk about this in a minute. um, You also can start understanding different strata of society, like landlords or lump and proletariat, but also like police officers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. You know, it's also the case, too. This is um, just let's just keep complicating this. Let's just keep piling things on top (laughs) of 
class analysis. But, you know, like um, in in the German ideology, Marx talks about this thing called the illusory community. Um, and uh, <laughs> I guess it kind of applies here, too, where uh, the illusory community is OK. Well, in the German ideology, Marx is talking about the, the, the human community and how, like in a true community, uh, you know, each individual can kind of come into their own and kind of grow into the type of person that they ought to be. Um, and, uh, you know, all these kinds of like very nice ideas that Marx writes about in the German ideology. But in capitalism, there's something that uh, we all kind of suffer from called the illusory community. It's the uh, the idea of our relationship to one another. Um, but it's all based on um, the logic of capital as sort of like the controlling factor. Right. So like in the boot, in the shoe factory, you've got the productive laborer, the shoemaker. You have the capitalist who owns all of the, you know, who owns the factory. And then you have the unproductive laborer who is, uh, you know, cleaning up or whatever. But like chances are because the capitalist kind of uh, sets the, you know, like sets the relationships of the factory. And, you know, there's also like a whole lot of overarching mythology within capitalism, too, about how people are valued. Um, the the worker who is like productive, who's actually making the boots might feel a lot of animosity towards the the person who's just cleaning up. Right. Because they have this like imagined connection to them where they are less than um you know one worker counts as less than the other just because of uh the ways capitalism has sort of set up these relationships about uh, mm -hmm. human value and whose labor counts so it all gets like really complicated um when you start really digging into it mm -hmm. yeah it does um i think that illusory community thing is so great though because especially if you're a Christian, uh, we have all kinds of ways of baptizing that illusory community with um, even more, even stronger kind of language, right? That it's about creating harmony and all that kind of stuff when really it's not. It's about these antagonisms. Um, maybe I could, uh, okay, we've been overcomplicating it. I'm going to try to bring us back to a more sort of simple um, thing, which is to say some people, when they talk about the working class, what is it, what defines it or whatever, um, they want to sort of let everybody in, um, everyone who's not like a business owner, let's say. Uh, and they do that by saying that anybody who gets a wage, for example, is part of the working class, right? Um, so that would be one way of trying to oversimplify this, uh, this sort of complicated process. Um, and I, I want to say, so it's true that proletarians uh, subsist off of wages, right? And that's uh, an important thing, right? You get paid a wage. And if you stop getting paid that wage, it would be bad for you. You couldn't pay your rent or buy food or whatever. So you'd have to find somebody else to give you a wage. So the wage system is very important. Um, but it actually makes it hard to figure out uh, who's on the side of working people and who's on the side of capital. Because lots of people get paid wages who also do not want working people to succeed, right? Um, and uh, I think this is maybe also an important way to keep talking about how uh, the working class is related to production. So maybe we could talk about cops because I offered that up as an example. Um, mm -hmm. You know, cops don't produce anything, but they do get paid a wage. So you might want to say that they're unproductive labor in the way that like a custodian is, right? Um, would this make them wage laborers? Well, like in a straightforward sense, yes, right? They do get paid wages and they do work. Uh, but why wouldn't we then think that cops are part of the working class? I think here we have to sort of add another element here to class analysis, which is to say that class is really a matter of class consciousness, of understanding how capitalism works and what your interests are within that system. So cops might get paid a wage, but ultimately their job is actually to protect the interests of capitalists, not the interests of workers. And this is really obvious when, you know, workers go on strike 
if that strike gets declared illegal, then the cops, if they're doing their actual job, what they get paid a wage to do, will naturally side with the ruling power of capital and defend property, not siding with the workers, right? Mm. So if we think of the working class as a class that's trying to become aware of its own interests, then we would have good reason to say that cops in a capitalist society actually aren't a part of this interest. Um, they're part of a different interest, part of the interest of capitalists. So they might get a wage, but they're not for that reason part of the working class insofar as their interests are always going to bump up against the working class. Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating distinction to make um, here. We could go in the other direction, too, though. Um, so <laughs> so cops are not part of the working class for all the reasons you said. And I think that's very interesting. Um, Sylvia Federici, a really prominent Marxist feminist scholar, uh, wrote a book. Well, sort of was, was was part of an activist movement in the 70s called Wages for Housework. Um, which basically the idea was uh, she wanted domestic laborers like women who are housewives to see themselves as workers to sort of elevate their class consciousness, not of like uh, just, you know, naturally what women do, but to think of them, the things that they do is actually producing work and not being the unproductive laborers that I think capitalism wants to uh, capitalism wants to you know make them out to be. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, she but but to do that, right, she has to sort of make the argument like, well, what what women actually do in inside the house is productive for capitalism. But capitalism um, obfuscates all of that by, um, you know, demoting the importance of their labor down to just naturally what women do out of their own sort of like desire or want, which is not mm -hmm. true <laughs> at all. So, I mean, anyways, it's it's the same argument, but in an opposite, an opposite direction where she's trying to sort of raise the class consciousness and understanding of a certain type of labor to be so, so that, that uh, this group of people, you know, women who do domestic labor in their house, think of themselves as workers rather than not. Whereas the argument that you just made is about how cops think of themselves as workers, but we, we shouldn't think of themselves them as workers. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think, you know, this is kind of like a sort of postmodern understanding of um, Marxism, but I think it's the right one, which is to say uh, working the working class is an identity that's always kind of in motion. Right. Like um, it does have some very identifiable relationships to to the process of production, like we've been saying. Right. Like uh, um, the the productive role of the proletarian worker makes a, a difference, a, a really important difference. And we can we can definitely affirm, like Marx does, that there's this kind of primary contradiction between the capitalists and the workers, right? That's the basic contradiction. But uh, all those other nebulous things that are floating around that primary contradiction, uh, which way they end up going, I think is really uh, complicated and uh, important, right? Like, um, the, the working class is the kind of thing that comes into being, uh, Marx says, uh, for itself over time when it understands its own interests and it's acting in those interests. Um, and I think that if you have that idea, you can admit a lot more dynamism into that category without losing some specificity. Like one example, you mentioned the wages for housework movement, which is a great illustration, right? Of how to expand the working class or at least its consciousness to include people who historically have not been understood as part of that class. Um, another might be like the Black Panther Party or the Young Lords. Uh, they focused quite a lot on the lump and proletariat specifically, uh, mm -hmm. people who were imprisoned or disenfranchised or uh, were part of a criminal economy. Um, Marx and Engels basically wrote that entire class off as being unorganizable or unorganized. But that was like the primary organizing base for the Panthers and for the Young Lords. 
And, mm-hmm. I, you know, the idea was, couldn't we find a way of drawing this class into uh, other sort of struggles as well, the the working class, et cetera. And when you do that, you inevitably bump up against things like race and gender and all that kind of stuff. So I think all that to say, uh, the working class isn't really a category that's like you figure it out once and for all, but it's a category that comes into being as people start to understand their own relationship to how they get oppressed by capitalism and they join together to do something different. I think that's a really, yeah, that's really great. A good note about the lumpen, I think. Um, You're right to mention, you know, the young Lords and the black Panthers for sure. I think that, you know, that's a lot of their organizing work. Here's like, this is a far less exciting example, but I still think that's, it's one that's still, I think worth talking about. Um, in 2018 in Florida, uh, there was a constitutional amendment, uh, that, uh, Florida ended up voting yes on that would let, um, that would let people who are returning citizens, people who are formerly incarcerated vote, that it would restore their voting rights to them. And the way that, I mean, so the activist group that was behind that is called the Florida rights restoration project. And the way that they, you know, got the way they won was by, you know, exactly, exactly the thing that, you know, Marx and Engels might have written off. They organized people who were, who were returning citizens. They organized people who were incarcerated. Um, and I think it's, uh, I don't know. It goes to show you that, um, that, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't write people off on the margins. <laughs> They're people with a lot mm-hmm. of energy who like actually have desires in their life and you should pay attention to them and, um, and, uh, yeah, organize with them. I think that's a good, a good note. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, too, that, you know, some of the most profound historians of uh, labor history in the United States, like I'm thinking of people like Mike Davis or uh, maybe like Paul Bula, but especially Mike Davis, um, the sort of, you know, the big question in the United States is why didn't the U.S. ever have like a real socialist labor party that was capable of uh, mounting an actual challenge to U.S. federal politics. You know, there there were lots of small victories in the labor movement, for sure, and the socialist movement, too, and even some big ones. But nowhere, in no at no point in time, was there a socialist who was, like, a genuine contender for the presidency, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the big question is why? Why is that? And one thing, one thesis that especially Mike Davis puts forward in, like, Prisoners of the American Dream is that there's this sort of weird, uh, I mean, there's lots of reasons that he puts forward, but the one that is relevant to this conversation is uh, there's this kind of weird reticence to draw in all kinds of uh, people into the struggle of the working class, whether it's because of segregated unions in the early labor movement or, um, you know, the tensions between genders within uh, the working class movement. It's a failure to sort of draw in as many sectors as you possibly can that ultimately has sort of hamstrung the American labor movement uh, and the socialist movement as a result. So the the corollary advice is that if you really want to build a working class capable of taking power in a place like the United States, you kind of have to like try to get as many people as you can possibly get, right? Mm-hmm. Which uh, is also the strategy recommended in the Communist Manifesto, even while, again, the the hope is always hung on the the working class. Um, you have to find all kinds of sectors that are willing to partner up with you in order to achieve that kind of class consciousness across the board. And again, I think this is such a profound challenge to the way Christians understand society, because what we really have to do as Christians is invest in building a base that understands its interests over and against other people's interests. And that doesn't really come naturally to a lot of Christians. Yeah, that's right. It sure doesn't. So that's why you need to learn about class. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. 
Um, maybe we can sort of, uh, as we bring the conversation to a close, talk about how Christians could invest in the class struggle. I mean, we talk about it a lot in this podcast, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's our 200th episode. Here we are going into a Joe Biden presidency. How can Christians really think of uh, our role in the class struggle differently? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, I have a little bit of a bias, but Christians can uh, get involved in the labor movement. That's what they should do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> go to a strike um, or just like go to a union meeting or join a union yourself. I think that's a really great idea. It's a it's a great way to like, OK, if you listen to all of this and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm very overwhelmed by all of this like economics talk. I can't even deal <laughs> with this. Fine. Don't don't worry about it. But if you do join a union and you start getting involved in labor struggles or you just try start trying to like talk to your coworkers about uh, you know, unionizing or whatever, I think you'll learn a lot of this stuff a lot quicker than just listening to our podcast. <laughs> it's mm-hmm, a way better mm-hmm. teacher. If Christians want to get involved in class struggle or like learn about it more, I think the best way to learn about it is by, you know, doing it and, and kind of getting your hands dirty in all of this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think too, trying to, as we do that, you know, as we get our hands dirty, um also then reflecting theologically on what that might do to our theological categories is also really mm. important um and in that sense there's lots of historical precedents you know like uh, we always point to that herbert mccabe essay the class struggle and christian love which is a great place but um there's lots of you know liberation theology has just loads and loads of voices who've tried to do this because they got their hands dirty right like these are like a theologian in Brazil like uh, Leonardo Boff who lives in the slums and works among people there uh, all of a sudden has to have a pretty different idea of what class is uh, that diverges from Rerum Novarum not because he doesn't want to respect the Pope or something but because he's like this isn't really how it works in the slums of Brazil right. Um, and that causes you to maybe rethink a lot of categories. So I think that's also another piece of it is like get involved and also try to, um, not reinvent the wheel, right? Like, um, there's a lot of people who've already done a great job of trying to formulate these categories. And it's, I think as Christians on the left, it's our job to, uh, recover that memory too, and hold it up and be like, we're in continuity with that struggle as we're learning whatever lessons we're trying to learn. That's it. That's what you gotta do. That's what you got to do. 200 episodes and you finally got to it. That's what you got to do. You got to get out there. You got to go to a strike, join a union, uh, invest in your own union, uh, listen to other Christians who are also invested in unions, and uh, we'll all figure out what the working class is. Uh, the working class is the friends we made along the way. That's what I'm trying to say <laughs> for this this whole 200th episode. It's true. That's it. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast for as many episodes as you've been here. If you've listened to everyone, may God have mercy on your soul, but thank you for all of that. Uh, If this is your first episode and it's our 200th episode, welcome. We'll see how long this goes. (laughs) You can support our our podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. We usually have uh, another podcast there called The Lock-In. Uh, where we talk about some current events and some goofy jokes and whatever else. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Uh, our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.